shots will ring out and we'll be into it. We will blunder into enemy or they will blunder into us. We will walk into their setup or they will walk into our setup, an ambush or something, and then away we go. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. To War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. General Sir Peter Cosgrove is one of Australia's most significant public figures. As a soldier, he saw action in Vietnam, winning the Military Cross, and rose to the top, becoming Chief of the Defence Force from 2002 to 2005. After his military career, Sir Peter became Australia's Governor-General, serving in that office from 2014 to 2019. In 2020, Sir Peter published his memoir, You Shouldn't Have Joined, with Alan and Unwin. And this October, the paperback is being released. Sir Peter's full life story is captured brilliantly in the book. In this podcast, he sat down over a Zoom video call with Angus Horden about some highlights from his life. You can watch this interview on our YouTube channel at Life on the Line Podcast or listen through your preferred podcast app. This is Angus Horden in conversation with General Sir Peter Cosgrove. I'm Angus Horden, speaking today with General Sir Peter Cosgrove. Sir Peter, welcome to Life on the Line. Angus, it's good to be with you and I'm extending a greeting through you now to all your uh, podcast viewers. Let's start with your childhood, Sir Peter. You were born in 1947. What was it like growing up in Paddington in the 40s and 50s? Well, Paddington, Paddo to just about all the residents in those days, was a working class suburb. It was a... uh, a great collection of characters and sort of their citizens. It was characterised a lot by the uh, number of returned servicemen and women in the suburb. As we know, Australia just like a sponge soaked up its uh, manpower and so many of its wonderful women into uniform during World War II. We had almost half a million people in the army alone in, uh, in World War II. So that was reflected in the demographic in Paddo. Working class, soul of the earth, self-confident, and with a streak of sort of solidarity and community cohesion a mile wide. It was a wonderful place to grow up. We were, as I have elsewhere referred to ourselves, as gentlemen urchins in the street, little gangs of kids who never got into any particular trouble but almost common property to people uh, well well beyond your own home. As you walked up and down the street, every neighbour would know who you are, who you belong to, and uh, would sort of be vigilant as to what you're up to. The shadow of World War II was not just in Australian society, but in your family. Can you tell us about your father and your uncle's military service? I had uh, three relatives, uh, my father, my uncle Bill, and my granddad on... That's my mother's father, Bob Henrys, 
all uh, in uh, the military uh, during World War II. Dad and and my granddad, Pop, we called him, uh, were in the AIF. And uh, my Uncle Bill joined the Royal Australian Air Force and flew fighters um, until, sadly, he was killed in a in an accident, basically, uh, took off on an operational mission, but unfortunately his aircraft crashed and he and his uh, number two in the Bowfighter up in the islands off uh, Goodenough Island uh, were killed in the crash. I never got to meet him. But within the family, he was famous within the family and had some modest fame as an Australian rules footballer from none other than uh, Jack Dyer, Captain Blood, the iconic figure from the Richmond Club. So... Uh, I did have a strong military instinct through all in my family. In fact, I think it was your dad who first coined the phrase of your latest book's title. Well, it's a phrase that resonated. I mean, the number of uh, warrant officers in particular who are that sort of glue within the military that sort of join military behaviour to, if you like, the spiritual ethos of being a soldier, who have that way of centering uh, soldiers who are starting to fragment because they're tired, uh, they're angry, uh, they're hungry, they're wet, uh, you know, they're frustrated. A warrant officer will say to them at some stage, you shouldn't have joined if you couldn't take a joke. And that is a centering comment and draws everybody back to the idea, we're soldiers. We're here to do tough stuff, which is obnoxious in the extreme. So just look, you know, just sort your ideas out and get ready to go. Yeah, it's a great title, especially for those that are in the know. Is it your family service that draws your interest into a military career then? Well, yes, I had, I had the good luck of a first-class education. Mum and Dad, uh, working-class family, uh, Dad was still in the Army and remained in the Army uh, until I was, uh, after I was commissioned. Uh, but Mum and Dad, there you are, they were in a working-class suburb and avowedly uh, had working-class approaches and instincts. But one of their uh, cardinal rules was that whatever education they could afford for my older sister and myself, we would get it. So we went to good schools and, and had a, a very sound and uh, privileged education. So I'm now about to uh, leave school. Well, I'm within months of finishing it uh, in 1964, and I had to decide. So I thought about a whole raft of uh, different careers. I thought about the law. I thought about journalism. I thought about being a policeman. I thought about being a teacher, and uh, I thought about the Army. Uh, and all of those were to do with people, mixing with people, human interrelationships, all of them. I, probably was predisposed towards the army. If you think back to when I started up at Duntroon, 1965, uh, World War II, uh, men and women were all over the army. Korea, men and women were all over the army. Malaya was still a live issue, confrontasi. Uh, we still, uh, uh, we were then starting to put more and more troops into Vietnam. So the army in particular, of course, the, the Air Force and the Navy, to the extent it was relevant to them, were also engaged in conflict. And to me, as a child of World War II or, or the short aftermath thereafter, that was almost in my DNA. So I went to the army. And also, I mean, if you're a Paddo boy, Victoria Barracks and the cricket ground are literally in your backyard. So 
you're seeing these great institutions every day of the week. Yes. The Australians of that time and of that suburb were sceptics, robustly irreverent, politically shrewd, if, if not sort of getting into the macroeconomics of it all, uh, but were fundamentally very patriotic. Uh, you couldn't expect anything else. Half the suburb had donned uniform during World War II and gone off uh, to protect Australia and its interests. How did you find your time at Duntroon at the Royal Military College? Absolute struggle. Boy, oh boy. I'd been in the school cadet unit. And of course, I was the child of a soldier, the grandson of a soldier. Uh, so, you know, I, I thought I knew a fair bit. I did know a bit about culture, but I, had, I was quite an immature youth. So I think part of the challenge for me was that as soon as I got to Duntroon, I was under the pump. So were we all. The senior classes applied bastardisation. That's a, a vulgar term for uh, orientation and hazing to uh, get people from wherever they feel their self-esteem and prior knowledge has taken them to a common level to uh, become homogeneous and to absorb the learnings and the traditions, the culture uh, of Duntroon and by extension, the army. So I was always in lower level trouble, untidiness, unpunctuality, disorganisation, um, sort of woolly thinking about uh, my priorities, all that sort of thing. And you had both uh, verbal chiding and, um, and summary punishments, which were basically putting you on the parade ground with all your uh, uh, field equipment and your rifle, marching up and down for half an hour in the early morning before most people in the rest of the organisation had got out of bed. So, I mean, I was a bit of a champion at that sort of thing. Uh, so, back to your question, I found it uh, uh, pretty, uh, uh, pretty confronting and often thought, why am I doing this? This is not working. But some inner spark said, keep punching away, keep trying. And I'm glad I did. And I would imagine the camaraderie that you build with your fellow diggers, because you're all sharing it together. And then those relationships, you know, are very formative in your latter years. We are like any large group that spends four years in this case, in close proximity. We started at 110 and then we finished at the end of the last year uh, in 1968 at 66. So 44 had moved on. Um, and that's, you know, uh, under the harsh pressures of the training, preparing us to command Australian soldiers, potentially soon thereafter in war, uh, I think you can understand that that rate. So, in other words, the, the pressure had to be on. It had to be intense and protracted. The learnings we had to absorb were life and death learnings, and the responsibility we'd have in the aftermath was very high. So I don't begrudge the time or the pressure. I came to think bastardisation was uh, overdone. 
and I was a practitioner of it, but back to my regard from my classmates. At the end of that time, the 110 down to the, the 66, all of them, you want to embrace them. When you see each other, even if in the usual way you weren't the best of chums at Duntroon, you have that wonderful, indelible, almost invisible tattoo. You've been at the Royal Military College and we were classmates. And even the ones where, you know, we don't have a lot in common or have not had over the years a lot in common, you would put your life on the line for them. Their word to you would be their bond and vice versa. So uh, we've got a hugely uh, strong bond in the class. Within a year of commissioning to lieutenant, you then sent to Vietnam. How did you feel about that? I was jumping out of my skin. Once I got over the hump of uh, sticking with it at Duntroon and, and dare I say, Duntroon sticking with me and not sort of showing me the door, uh, I started to look up a bit as to what I wanted to do. Without doubt, I wanted to be an infantry officer. Infantry were uh, the ones uh, most profoundly engaged in operational work in wherever it was, but particularly Vietnam. I wanted to go to Vietnam. So uh, I was cracking my neck to be posted when I left Untroon to the next cab off the rank amongst the infantry battalions that was due to go to Vietnam. I wanted that to be for me. And, of course, through my uh, um, sort of struggling early career at Duntroon, my marks were average. So that when we got into the final year as an infantry candidate, I think perhaps the staff said, yeah, probably he should be an infantryman. But I don't think they thought, well, and we should put him first in the queue to go to a battalion that's going to go to Vietnam. So I was sent to a fantastic battalion, but it was in Vietnam about to come home. So as a brand new officer, I could hardly go there. So I met the battalion when it came home. And I was, oh, dear, I did. Knowing that it was several years at least before that battalion would be back in the queue to go back to Vietnam. One RAR. This was its second tour. Was it going to get a third tour? Maybe not. And, of course, it didn't. It went off to Malaya. So I went to Malaya uh, with the battalion as a platoon commander. At times, I was an acting company commander there. And within a few months, a message arrived to say, Cosgrave and another officer uh, from the battalion are required immediately to go from one RAR in Malaya to Vietnam to be reinforcements or uh, to be put into infantry battalions up there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In your book, You Shouldn't Have Joined, you actually describe your first battle, which was around October 69 in detail. Could you talk to us about the challenges that you faced on that day and indeed the ensuing days because it was a series of engagements? Every day when you woke up and every night when you decided to get your head down for a couple of hours, you set a silent prayer of thanks to that wonderful generation of instructors at Duntroon, uh, even to my granddad and my dad, whose military service by osmosis and occasional you know, yarns helped me in preparation. Uh, you gave thanks to the really experienced uh, people you had around you that you were as well prepared 
as possibly you might be. Every day, short of your first battle, is another day of experience, learning. And you learn from your diggers as well. I mean, one of the things being the son of a warrant officer and the grandson of a warrant officer meant that I felt no separation, no cultural separation from the diggers. I understood them probably as, as well as perhaps any other of my fellow graduates from Duntroon at that time. And I might say I've lent on that characteristic or part of my learning for the rest of my career that I believe I understand soldiers. So there was a lot of learning there. And, and of course, before and after the prayer, each morning and evening, was the apprehension. Today might be the day. Sooner or later, shots will ring out and we'll be into it. We will blunder into enemy or they will blunder into us. We will walk into their setup or they will walk into our setup and ambush or something, and then away we go. You don't know how you're going to react. So you spend your entire time trying to do the needful things, which are sensible and um, sufficiently aggressive things to be uh, a fighting infantry platoon commander. What do I mean by the aggression? Well, you're not out there to sit under a, a bamboo clump in the jungle. You're out there to find a skillful, vigilant and brave enemy because you, you're there to take away their safety, their security, their privacy because they're trying to hide from you and to uh, kill or capture them. That's the infantry role. Doing all that involves risk. Every day you're thinking, I'm going to make the diggers do another 1,000 metres. There's still an hour of patrolling in the day. Uh, look around there. I'll be colloquial here, they're knackered, they're tired. But we've got, I reckon we've got another um, kilometre in us through this very thick jungle. You're doing that all the time and everything's a balance. So when you get to the stage where on a particular day that battle transpires, that's the key moment. And how did you find the jungle? Intimidating the jungle, the, the, the jungle training instructors we had at Duntroon would refer to it as the friendly jay, friendly jungle, friendly jay. And there was some irony in that, but also a wonderful sense of uh, uh, imparting skills that would mean the jungle was more of your friend in the sense that you were comfortable there you could exploit the jungle and in Vietnam against the people who actually lived in it for much of the time. So uh, it was, it was a, a very eerie and demanding environment. And I've said over the years to younger soldiers, officers that I've been involved in training, that if you were adept at jungle training, with further environmental training, you can adapt that sort of military skill to the other environments, open warfare in savannah, um, uh, the Australian bush, if you like, uh, in deserts, uh, even in cold weather environments. If you're good at jungle warfare, add the other skills, 
and you, you'll be a pretty good soldier. I remember when we spoke to a great fellow, Peter Slack-Smith, who's a veteran of Long Tan on the uh, Life on the Line, and he shared with us how important indirect fire was in saving their position amongst the helicopter drops, you know, the APVs at the end. But the 105 millimetres really saved their position in many regards. Now, in your engagement, you don't have indirect fire support. Occasionally we did. And it was, as Peter said, I believe, uh, an absolute force multiplier because an enemy knew that if they lingered for too long in a particular position, we'd move heaven and earth to put indirect fire on them. Now, one of their uh, tactics was when they couldn't withdraw uh, easily, they'd go for an embrace. That is, to be close enough to you, you couldn't bring in your own indirect fire. Well, yes, we became pretty good and we enjoyed such a relationship with our artillery, our allied artillery, our mortars and the like. We could drag that in pretty close, mm. pretty close. But I did use indirect fire, but not often in the sort of encounter battles which characterised uh, that part of uh, my life. And that was uh, you're advancing to contact, uh, you're patrolling. And you discover sign, and it's pretty close because of the nature of the jungle. It's not you don't detect the enemy at three or four hundred meters range. It could be, you know, uh, around the next clump of bamboo. So then, uh, what we wanted to do was to turn, if you like, the advers adversary's tactic of hugging you close to escape your indirect fire. We turned that on them by hugging them close to be through, into them and through them before they could, uh, in their own way, uh, successfully withdraw. Now, the balance there is um, never get yourself so involved that you cannot, uh, you cannot extricate yourself. By gee, that's the judgment call. But aggression, 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 and firepower forward into the enemy to a point where uh, there's a sort of, combat paralysis can overtake them. I'm sort of guessing you're the sort of leader that would probably go into battle with an M16 rather than a pistol then. A pistol is, you're armed, but um, in the sort of warfare I'm talking, you, the next best thing to a non-combatant, if you're flourishing a pistol, it's got very little stopping power and if it, you know, have a pistol round hit a decent twig of jungle, it's not going to hit what you thought you were aiming at. It's, as I said, semi-automatic. There's a limited number of rounds in the magazine and you're fiddling around trying to put a new magazine on every you know, 30 seconds or so. No, it's a protective weapon that you might wear around the base in case somebody was rude to you in the mess. You're later awarded the Military Cross for action in Vietnam. The war was quite a formative experience on you. How did you feel seeing over the following years, the growing public sentiment against the war, sadly. Well, we were aware of that gathering sentiment in 1969-70 when I was uh, in Vietnam, but it was at some distance removed. We didn't get uh, television broadcast into our uh, 
uh, into our base areas when we were back in Nui Dat, and we were out in the jungle most of the time. So uh, it was sort of a, an event. Um, I possibly didn't realise the, uh, the growing nature of it. It was only when I returned, and, uh, and of course, by the time I got back in 1970, the writing was on the wall for the Australian commitment that there would probably be some level of drawdown. And then rapidly, 71, 72, we see that, well, look, this is, you know, there'll be no, no, no third tour for one RAR, et cetera. So we, um, I, I was taken aback. Uh, and I was taken aback particularly because while I profoundly understood people's uneasiness with the fact that we're at war, the marches and the, uh, the, the contumely, the abuse directed towards the military was a very disappointing aspect of the anti-Vietnam protests. People had forgotten or had been led to forget that the Australian military is uh, under the control and direction of the government of the day. And to take out your spleen, so to speak, on the men and women of the Australian Defence Force uh, was so disappointing. I pointed this out in, on numerous occasions as the years have gone past. I don't return to it very much uh, uh, these days, but on the occasions when I've spoken about it, I point the blame squarely at some people who springboarding off their roles in those Vietnam protests got themselves into high political office. What I want them to do is not run around in sackcloth and ashes, but just to recall that when they, in their elevated lives, were making decisions about the men and women of the Australian Defence Force. You have an early Governor-General experience decades before you take up the position as aide-de-camp to Governor-General Paul Hasluck. Can you share that experience? Well, even though I'd uh, returned from Vietnam and I'd be, I was much more mature uh, than I, when I went there uh, and very confident I had the, the military cross, so I'd been, uh, if you like, placed on a bit of a pedestal by the serendipity of that award. Remember that, I, I, and I've said this publicly, uh, I had a successful platoon of soldiers. They were great, brave soldiers. And uh, they sort of carried me on their shoulders. That's pretty much the way it is. Now, uh, so there I was, but I was unsophisticated. And one of the things you'd have to say about being aide de comp to the Governor General is that you cannot be Jack the Lad. You are no longer a tearaway. You have to assist, and if I may say it, adorn the office. You are there representing the army through the office of the Governor General to those members of the public and the many hundreds, the thousands of them that the Governor General encounters. So you, 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 uh, buffhead behaviour is not countenance. So I didn't feel as if I had the appropriate level of sophistication. But I thought to myself, well, I got through Duntroon and that helped knock off some rough edges. Uh, I 
uh, am now more mature, more adult, if you like, uh, through the experience of Vietnam. I think I can do this job, and I did. And I, uh, I put my hand up, and I was accepted to do it. And I had a year there, and I was um, delighted when I look back. It showed me stuff. It showed me, in a way, how power was exercised in Australia. Not because I was in that chain of power. I was just an observer. But, you know, you you soak up experiences like a sponge. And I walked away from that year not thinking, well, that's a interesting year. No, no, the experience was very valuable. And in the 1970s, you met and married your wife, Lynn. I did. And I had been back into regimental life after being aide de to the Governor-General, a company second in command uh, in uh, 5th Battalion, uh, adjutant of 5 RAR, then adjutant of 5-7 RAR, and then in my final of three years, company commander of Delta Company 5-7 RAR. And it was in that year that I um, started to, to look around because obviously uh, something missing in my life. I, I'd taken out lots of young women on dates and had some relationships that had lasted a while. Some were just a date. Uh, and I was um, thinking, you know, I, I really would love to uh, have the evident happiness as I looked around the married officers in the unit. So many of them seemed more complete so anyway, I started to date Lynn and I knew uh, straight away that if she could put up with the army, I'd like her to spend the rest of my life, my army lifetime with me and then forever and ever after that. And that's what happened. She, my diggers in D Company 5-7 basically took me to task at our breakup party for 19... 75, uh, when I took her along as my date for the evening, and they said, she's a keeper, boss. <laughs> Don't you dare let this one go. So, okay, soldier. <laughs> and history has proven you were dead right on that. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm pleased to say. Your career continues, rising through the ranks, through the long piece. What was it about the Australian Army that kept you going with this career? Was it the new challenges of command or the culture? It's not a, a term used very much these days, but the word is evocative. I had discovered a vocation. Just like a, a doctor might say, I'm now in a vocation. It's not a career anymore. It's a vocation. I could not imagine, even when peace could be seen as a bit boring and quite repetitive, I could not imagine not being in the army. I craved jobs where I had groups of soldiers. Because I was infantry in that first number of years, mostly men, or virtually all men. And then as I got jobs outside infantry corps, men and women, didn't matter, soldiers. The fact of uh, staying in, even when the the roles for peacetime training, there were uh, jobs coming along which were hugely interesting. You know, what? I, when I wasn't being in regimental life, I loved being an instructor. That really pushed the buttons for me. 
when you sought to assist in the development of peers of more junior people. I can remember one of the first, well, when I got back from Vietnam before being ADC, I was an officer instructor on what we called then the Army Headquarters Methods of Instruction Team. So I went from being a, you know, an infantry platoon commander to a trainer with a small group of warrants uh, training the staffs of military schools how to do better at instruction. Bit cheeky, I thought, because I was only 17 months out of done training. However, training jobs, loved them. Now, you know, I, I didn't have to really take on a staff job for uh, quite some time. You rise to national prominence at the end of the 20th century at the rank of Major General. Do you remember when you were first told that you were going to lead the peacekeeping mission to Timor? I was involved increasingly in 99 with the planning for military events in East Timor. Go back into earlier in the year, around May, when the uh, UN force, uh, UN team started to deploy into uh, East Timor. Their job in particular was to um, coordinate the plebiscite that was coming up to establish independence or remain integrated with Indonesia. So there they were, uh, a lot of UN people from overseas, plus Timorese working for them. And they needed a military backstop, a plan to uh, uh, help get them out if uh, internal strife in East Timor made their position untenable. We were doing the planning for that. And I was planning on how we would do it, what assets would be used. And of course, I wasn't doing that independently. That was stuff that was feeding up to us from uh, Canberra and Sydney and from us back down the line. As things got closer to the vote and the vote, and there was more violence, we dusted off those plans and sharpened them up for an intervention which was to be going in and coming out. And then as the storm clouds gathered, we started to plan for going in and not coming out. Again, using a lot of Australian Army assets, but thinking about the ongoing role for our Air Force and our Navy in this and perhaps coalition partners. Still wasn't clear who would command. And then when it became obvious, A, that there would be a UN force, B, it wouldn't be a Blue Beret force, it would have to be a, a, a rapid reaction force, like a coalition of the willing, and C, Australia offered to lead. Well, it was like a Melbourne Cup field lining up at the barrier. I was a logical person to take the group and then the add-ons uh, because I was Commander 1 Div. My other hat was Commander of the Deployable Joint Force Headquarters. That would be the headquarters, the Australian headquarters to go. I didn't blame every other two-star in creation <laughs> for lusting after the job because it was, if you're a career officer, you want to do those jobs. But I had my hand up as high as it could go. And we had the preliminary operation called Spitfire to first, before we conducted the UN-sanctioned operation, we had to get the poor old UN, uh, 1,100 people or so, out of uh, East Timor to safety in Darwin or wherever. 
So that was Operation Spitfire, conducted by the Air Force and our Special Forces and basing from Tyndall. And I said to CDF, uh, this stage I was a, a good thing to command the later intervention. I should command that because I'm going to be using these Special Forces guys in the intervention and we need to get to know each other. So that command was pretty light on. There was almost an autonomous uh, regimental level activity getting people onto C-130s. So I felt extraordinarily blessed to be the guy that was to command. And I felt confident. I was very confident in how our soldiers and sailors and airmen and women would perform. Uh, I knew that there would be a challenge uh, integrating the however many nations would gather. I was so confident in how our, our soldiers would perform. And for that matter, in the hope that we'd get Kiwis, and we did, of course, how they would perform. I knew. I knew how they would go. They would be fantastic. I knew that there would be a disorientation period because uh, 90% of the uh, Australians would not have had an operational experience before. We got through that. We got through that. 48 hours and you, you were looking at veterans, young veterans. Okay, I felt, I felt ready. Uh, I, I'd commanded troops at a lot of different levels. By the time I finished as CDF, I'd commanded at 13 different levels and types of units. So uh, I knew the potential of our force and I had a pretty good idea of how best to use them. And look, the Interfed mission had the whole world watching and fortunately it was a great success. Thankfully, it was short, relatively bloodless, and it must have been very rewarding to be on the ground enabling the Timorese to vote for their independence from Indonesia eventually. Well, Angus, I can say that uh, naturally we focus on how well our men and women and the 21 other nations, a total of 22 nations, contributing troops uh, through the Navy, the Army, the Air Force of those nations. We, we focus on that. We focus a lot on the Indonesians. We focus on the militia. Uh, we have to bring it back time after time to the fortitude, the endurance, and if you like, the sympathy, the empathy of the East Timorese. They were the ones who suffered. And Fallontil, which was the armed resistance, they could see a victory on the horizon, but their forbearance in staying in cantonments while we reduced the very volatile countrywide security situation from volatility and bloodshed to peace and stability. So Valentil could come out and enjoy the open embrace of their people, could take their place as the emerging security force, national security force for uh, Timor-Leste. To me, remember the role they played. And the other thing is, um, we had the majority of troops here, I can, but I think I can speak for the 22 nations. Military people love rendering aid. You know, the fighting part is necessary and sad and dangerous. And uh, I, I don't know any 
a human who should relish in the killing of another person or even doing them physical harm. It's necessary and you must be resolute uh, at such times. But I tell you, good soldiers, sailors and airmen and women love rendering assistance to helpless people in need. That's not why they join the Defence Force, because they understand they have to put their lives on the line. But I consider that it was a huge boost to the self-esteem of the troops involved, and especially the Australians, because I know them best. I can still remember you addressing the nation, and you were talking about how things were going up there. And in particular, I remember you remarking how proud you were of the guys and girls you had up there. And you said they're every much as, as good as our original Anzacs. And you just made us all so comfortable and proud that they were doing such a good job. I, I, I remember that most about you. Well, uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to uh, sing their praises in, in the sense that uh, I'd become a public figure. And there's hardly a moment where there was a TV camera and somebody with a microphone that somebody would say, oh, you want to make some remarks. And I became, if you like, the town crier for ordinary boys and girls from the place next door uh, who didn't have the opportunity to say how they felt about all this. Uh, but I knew how they felt and I, I didn't hesitate to say it. I did get a go in the Great Hall of Parliament in the short aftermath of returning from Timor representing the thousands of Australians. And in the audience, we would have had 100 or something like that of, of Interfet veterans, but mostly they were back in their homes or back in their bases around Australia, getting on with life. So I spoke on their behalf and I spoke about they were endlessly compassionate. Um, and uh, in that, I'm drawing to the nation's attention that um, you've got the national treasure in that uniform of the Navy, the Army or the Air Force. They're not greater people than any other Australian, but they do have to perform under some exceptional hardships and they never disappoint. Looking back now, how do you feel that the ADF's success in Timor set us up for the next couple of generations when we had deployments into the Middle East? Well, in a variety of ways. I think there was a level of uh, self-confidence in the Australian Defence Force, all three services, at every level. Example, uh, I thought our logisticians were going to have mass heart attacks when we mooted the requirement in East Timor. So, you know, lots of hand-wringing. They got on with it and they were superb. We published some of the logistic shortcomings, which were often in... Uh, equipment systems, IT systems, uh, all that sort of thing, uh, some hardware. And, uh, but the people got a self-confidence like you wouldn't believe. Um, and you play that forward to when we start deploying over strategic distances into the Middle East, and you saw the superb way our logisticians performed there. Fantastic. Um, now, I, uh, at some stage, I don't know whether you'll ask this, but we'll, you know, there's been issues of reputational and, and uh, uh, behavioural issues with some people who were in that long, long uh, Middle East deployment. 
set that aside for now and just look at the way in which our people performed mm-hmm. in the Middle East. 90%, 99%, whatever the high percentage is, superb. Uh, with uh, professional skill. Um, let me give you an anecdote. Early in the deployment to the Middle East, uh, this was in relation to Iraq, I went to see our forces in the Middle East. I was uh, chief of army at the time. And I went to a headquarters uh, over in the uh, princely states. I won't say exactly where, but uh, we had a, uh, there was a US base there and they had a headquarters and we had a dozen or so people. And I kept hearing about, I'm going to call him Corporal Snooks. Corporal Snooks was an intelligence corps person and he was in this headquarters. And everywhere I went, whether it was to the operations people, intelligence people, the special forces cell, uh, the logisticians, the cohort people, the PR people, Corporal Snooks got mentioned because Corporal Snooks, there was a, like an int dutyman uh, in whatever that ECN is, and with the rank of corporal, was an everyman. Everybody was saying, Corporal Snooks does that for us. So eventually I met Corporal Snooks. Hey, very well set up lad. So I had a little bit of a break before I uh, had a plenary and uh, with uh, a morning tea that Corporal Snooks had arranged with the commanding general and all that sort of thing. So I rang schema. Uh, and unfortunately, the work hours suited. So I'm talking to the CA schema. I said, immediately find out about Corporal Snooks. Uh, is he promotable? And he said, uh, I'll have a look. Got back to me you know, two minutes later. Yes, he's a bit young, but you know, Chief of Army, he's promotable. I said, thank you very much. You know, I'll, you'll get a call from my ADC in about a half an hour. So I, uh, we get to the morning tea and the commanding general, comes in and he mentions Corporal Snooks says, oh, we've got all the Australians, we've got Corporal Snooks. I said, oh, no, you got that wrong, General. He said, what's that? I said, he's now Sergeant Snooks. I'm promoting him on the spot. <laughs> and, and he looked at me, the poor old Corporal, his eyes just about fell out of his head. And I said, here's your next challenge. You are to appear with Sergeant Chevrons tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Our people, they're fantastic. You're a Lieutenant General and you're serving as Chief of Army when the world changes, sadly, in September 2001. What was your memory of the 9-11 terror attacks? Uh, Lynn and I were in Kuala Lumpur. There was a Pacific Army Chiefs Conference. This is co-sponsored by the United States, well, the Army of the United States, and a rotational uh, arrangement with the various Indo-Pacific Army Chiefs. So in this case... Malaysia was hosting the event. So it's day one, all the chiefs are there, and we're having a vast cocktail party with lolly water because it's a Muslim nation, nation mm-hmm. yeah, with soft drink, uh, in the, uh, oh, the grand foyer of a major hotel in Kuala Lumpur. While we're there, yeah, remember there's a time difference. While we're there, a rumour flashes around the room. There's been some incident uh, in New York. Uh, it looks like an aeroplane has crashed into one of the World Trade Center towers and you're envisaging uh, a lunatic in a Cessna. You know, so, oh, that's sad. And the rumour keeps going and then another aircraft has gone into the other tower. Instantly I knew and my colleagues started to know 
terrorism. I walked from this reception space, gathered the ADC, said, organise a car. We're going straight back to uh, our hotel. That wasn't the one we were staying in. Organise the car. And as soon as we get back, organise Lynn and I and yourself back to Australia. I'm going immediately back because Australia will be on its toes about this. And so that's when we're now leaving and we're going down the escalators and on the escalator with me is a fellow called Rick Shinseki, who was the chief of staff of the US Army and a bloke that I know well and I like him a lot. And uh, we already knew one another and we were going on the escalator down to the ground floor to get in our limos to head off. And Rick's on the phone and he's already been talking to the Pentagon and his phone rings again. And he he's a Japanese-American, so he's a sort of Japanese skin tone. He turns an ugly pale colour on the next call. He turns to me, covers the handset and says, an aircraft's just flown into the uh, Pentagon. Wow. Well, the world changed. Now, it can become trite to say the world's changed because, yes, it's changed, and we'll never go back. Public confidence was attacked. Terror achieved its aim. There needed to be a reaction. A colleague of mine the other day labelled uh, all the reactions after 9-11. The engagement in the Middle East is flawed. There had to be uh, a, an immediate show of force. We had to stand on our toes and improve our security, and we did. And we had to join in with our American colleagues, and we did. Of all the military decisions that I've been party to over the years, uh, that one to contribute in a powerful way to the events into Afghanistan in um, 01, late 01 till 02, were most important. You can argue the toss about the return in 05 and onwards, but that one, that was the right call. You serve as Chief of the Defence Force from 2002 to 2005. You're starting your career patrolling in the Vietnam jungles. When you're in the room either being told by the government of the day about a new military commitment or you're overseeing the execution, what's it like to you from a high-level position with a lot of authority and responsibility when you know the decisions you make will translate to the frontline diggers who you've served with? You've got twin, a number of responsibilities. The first is to be a warfighter and an excellent warfighter at the high operational and strategic level. So you, you must transcend from the simple application of military force to understanding what are the strategic aims, imperatives, uh, objectives and risks of different sorts of military commitment. Example, contrast the contribution Australia made to the first Gulf War to that which it made in the second Gulf War. And in the first Gulf War, our ground manoeuvre elements were not there. We had Air Force, not attack aircraft, and we had ships in the Gulf. The government's nuance there was that ejecting Saddam's forces 
back to its own borders was a something that would be accomplished swiftly and decisively by the available forces, the United States, plus some other allies, plus its uh, partners in the coalition of the willing. Different, uh, different event in 2003. The undertaking on paper was much more serious. It proved, to, proved that there were no weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq uh, and against the equally strong evidence that Saddam had them at some stage, used them at some stage. Okay. Now we can argue endlessly about what happened, but uh, there was the possibility that they would be there and used. Now, imagine scuds into Israel with chemical warheads or biological warheads. Just imagine that and imagine the scrambling in the aftermath of that. Much more serious event. Um, our, so our, our contribution was always going to be different. Now, the contribution had to have our flag flying authoritatively and, and usefully in a circle of flags. I don't mean that in a flippant way. Two or three people in a headquarters wouldn't qualify you to say Australia is there. It would not fit with our reputation internationally and with uh, within ANSYS. So uh, we tailored our requirement. We put combat aircraft in there. And that was important. Our Air Force is in the front rank of professionals around the world. Uh, we put warships in the Gulf, as well as logistic and, and amphibious ships. We had lots of people in headquarters and we had a special forces component. We also had bits and pieces, clearance divers and all those sorts of people. But we, we conceived of a cap. The utility, if you're the CDF, the utility of a cap is to provide a discipline. There's nothing magic about a cap. It's a discipline requiring every person that anybody wants to deploy beyond that cap, come and justify it. What are you going to trade off? If I say it's 2,250 and turn around tomorrow and you're saying, here's an ambit claim for 3,000, aren't we just doing mission creep? So special forces from the Incident Response Regiment because we took, you know, chemical, biological, not nuclear, but the chemical and biological threats seriously. And we had some engineers for other reasons. And, you know, we we crafted a very important um, uh, ground combat capability. That's 2003. Um, return to Afghanistan. Look, uh, after O2, when a lot of the Tier 1 Special Forces had either rotated or just gone home, uh, we had a rotate and replace or what? Now, the, the mission in Afghanistan was going to devolve 
to ISAF, which was a NATO-based contribution. And then we saw, soon after we said, right, well, we've done our bit, we've uh, looked, for, we've just looked for al-Qaeda and destroyed them where we could, and the Taliban are no longer the government in authority. Um, we'd done that job, bring them home. And after that, when ISAF started to do its work, we could see the mission evolving. Some call it mission creep, nation building and that sort of thing. Every part of that was worthy, but it was different. And every time you engaged in what might be called uh, social development, um, you engaging in a contest in a nation which has seen off Alexander the Great, mm. the Persians, uh, you just name it. The Russians most recently beforehand. Mm. And um, so when I left in the middle of 05, we hadn't returned to Afghanistan and I could see the gathering pressure whereby Australia would be under significant pressure to return. I suppose the point of view having been a soldier in the field and then being at the top of the tree and making decisions where you're putting these guys in harm's way, how did you feel on that? Well, it comes with the territory. You're going to be putting people in harm's way, and I'm not being trivial here, when you put your platoon through the obstacle course. That's at a low level. Come on, chaps, you know, uh, let's do it. I can recall an incident when I was a company commander uh, at Holsworthy and we took the company, we were doing a field exercise, and then we had to report to a, an airstrip on Holsworthy range so that a C-130 could do a load following exercise or a, 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 a low-level low level extraction of a pallet of goods. And some lunatic, not, not, not from my company, fired a flare to show the pilots the wind direction on the ground. And unfortunately, it started a bushfire. So we sent the Hercules away while we fought the bushfire. And the CO directed my whole company, of course, which was nearby, to dash in and do our best to put out the bushfire. We dashed in. We dashed out equally quickly because that part of, that part of the bush had a lot of UXBs, uh, uh, projectiles from... 105s and 81s in there, unexploded. And, you know, with the fire, I thought, well, they could go off. Took the team out, reported to the CO. He said, you've got to get in there and fight them. So I took the officers, the CSM, the sergeants, the corporals and the lance jacks in. Left one lance jack out with the, the diggers. We get paid more. We'll go and fight the fire. You can't do that all the time. As you get more senior... The right people are going to take the risks. I did an actuarial sum using formula we've got about how many people we'd lose in Iraq. And they were mostly going to be from the ground element, that is the element that we had for uh, the land combat, and some at air bases, etc. if attacks by fire or infiltration occurred. And we came up with a number. I won't tell you the number because it's still classified, no doubt. 
and I took it to the Cabinet. And it was very important that the politicians in the National Security Cabinet understood our best estimate of how many casualties we would take. And it was very stark to tell them. Now, at that stage, we hadn't lost a soul. At the end of the war phase in Iraq and before the jihadism uh, ramped up, when Saddam's uh, regime had been uh, defeated and dismantled, we hadn't lost a soul. Miracle. But they had to know. And, you know, uh, that it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a very comfortable moment for the cabinet, but they had to know. And they did. And they kept their cool. So, yeah, you send people into harm's way and you're not the one, uh, you're not the one taking the risks. Interesting. I remember my dad sadly telling me, uh, who was in the Navy in the war, they had gone to England just to collect a ship. It was the HMS Shropshire. And there were a bunch of guys just having a, you know, a night on the town and coming home, one of the guys got another fella's cap, threw it over the fence. The guy climbed the fence and when he dropped to the other side, he landed on a mine and it blew him up. And, and as you say, he wasn't in the front line, but when you're in the military, you deal with dangerous equipment and these things happen tragically. Mm. You finish your time in the military after 40 very distinguished years as Chief of Defence Force. How was that day for you when you finally hung up your uniform? Sad, uh, nostalgia, but sad. Everything's got to finish. I looked at the bench strength of who was available to be CDF next. Any number of very talented officers were trained and ready. Behind them were busloads of Navy, Army and Air Force officers and very strong bench strength. I reckon the ADF was in good shape. And my thought was... It's healthy, healthy for people to come along. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing so sad as somebody who starts to feel they're irreplaceable. Mm. I said when I started as CDF to the logical successors, there were a team of them, got them together and said, watch and learn, uh, you know, learn from my, whatever I do, but learn from my mistakes and I will keep you posted and what my thought processes are about things, I'll make the call. I'll get your advice, but I'll make the call. But you'll know the logic I'm using because I'm only staying three years. And some of them have subsequently told me, they said, oh, yeah, we'll believe that when we see it. And I did, three years. Because I think that uh, if you stay longer, say six years, that's sad for the people coming along behind. Keep them keen. Keep them learning. Give yourself choices. Um, as we speak, under AUKUS, we will go through in the next number of years a sort of semi-revolution in the force structure and capability of the overall Australian Defence Force, particularly in the maritime space. Well... We're going to have some marvellous bench strength coming through. Uh, and I, I as a, an ageing man, won't be surprised if more Air Force and Navy, Navy and Air Force senior officers get some crucial jobs to ensure 
that this island nation has that sort of expertise readily available to the government. I love my service. And remember, no wars uh, can be won without there being a vibrant and successful army. Everything else is defence or getting a partial outcome. So, uh, but I, I'm speaking about uh, the, the health check for the system has to be, let's make sure we don't ever, in, in that short space between the ears of our leaders, uh, lack the expertise to keep government uh, with flexibility and the possibility of success. Your latest book details the immense array of work you've done in the corporate world and the community leadership in your post-military life. I especially like your pole vaulting analogy. Then in 2014, you succeed Dame Quinton Bryce into the Vice-Regal of Governor-General of Australia, our 26th Governor-General. Just when you might have thought you had the top job done as CDF of our military, you're then in another kind of top job. Can you tell us about the phone call you received that offered you that job? It was obvious that uh, Quentin Bryce, whose five years would have been up before the election in 2013, well, a, a new Governor-General would be have to go through the election period. And I think it's a good principle when that a Governor-General should sort of know the ropes a bit before you have to take on a federal election. So I think Julia Gillard was in the process of considering who might be a new Governor-General, and I think maybe Tony Abbott had a discussion with her to say, look, federal election is going to be in sort of September-ish in uh, uh, 2013. How about you and I have a, a deal that you ask Quentin to serve on and whoever's the new PM, you, if you're re-elected, or me, uh, if I'm elected, chooses the GG. And, and the way it's done is you come up with a name and then you ask that person. And I just make that point that you you have to, have to say, well, I'll do it. So anyway, uh, Julia Gillard said yes. And that meant that it was postponed and it was able to make the call. And it's um, October, I think. Uh, uh, 2013, and I'm writing to a board meeting in Brisbane. I'm in a limo that picked me up at the airport, and I've got a colleague, a civvy, uh, a friend uh, on the same board. He's rendezvoused off a flight from Melbourne, and we're now sitting in the back of the limo together. There'd been speculation in the media about who might be asked to do the job, and my name uh, had been mentioned by this one or that one in, in amongst a whole bunch of names. And I think centre bet or sports bet or something had me at a dollar thirty. Um, so Lynn and I, you know, whoa, gee, well, what about if that was happened? I'm sitting in the back of the limo and my iPhone rings and it comes up on my screen as Tony Abbott, and I realise that he's as new prime minister. He doesn't ring up people just to have a gas bag, right? So I could have said, and I normally say, yes, prime minister. Yeah, but I knew with my pal alongside me, and he's he'd been looking at the media. Uh, if I said yes, Prime Minister, he's flapping his ears. He, that's uh, and the, the hire car driver in the front. He, he oh, so, 
I just said, hello, very offhand. And the voice on the other end says, oh, it's uh, Tony Abbott, Peter. I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. How are you? He said, I'm very well. He said, and then he went through a bit of a, bit of a spiel, a monologue that he'd been thinking about Governor General. He thought that I would be uh, the right fellow for the job. And he wondered what I would think about that. And, of course, you're being asked to be Australia's first citizen by the Prime Minister. And having spoken about it with Lynn and sort of we chatted about it and I knew a bit about the job having been there and we'd visited many times uh, in our senior time. So uh, my inclination was to say, oh, yeah, of course I'll do that. Uh, but I did want to uh, talk to Lynn before I said yes, because it's not just one person. Mm. It's a team effort. Anyway, so I said to Tony, Yes, yes. I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, I'll tell you what, um, yes, let me give it some thought and I'll call you tomorrow. And I finished the call. And so airy-fairy and matter-of-fact in the back of the car, my pal didn't think a thing about it. As soon as I got to where I was going, I excused myself and rang Lynn up and said, guess what, I've had a call from Abbott. And uh, yeah, we went through that. And we that night had a, a longer chat and we were in. It's an honour. You can't say no if somebody thinks that you can be the Governor General and, and, and you think you understand the job and you're in reasonable health. We're in good health. Uh, and your family's grown up and all that sort of thing. You have to say yes. So this is, a, you know, your, your nation's calling you through the voice of the Prime Minister. So I rang Tony back. And this time I was a lot more formal, uh, Prime Minister. Yeah, and I, I said before I say uh, the words you're looking for here, let me explain. Yes, sir. and I think he was hugely relieved <laughs> that he hadn't rung this absolute flake. <laughs> yes, anyway, that that's the story of how I got asked, and I, I said I'd be honoured to accept. I'm so glad that you mentioned Lynn a number of times then because she has been this steadfast, wonderful ambassador, partner, mother to your, you know, your three boys, who I understand I think has moved you something like 27 times through different residences. You really have been blessed with a wonderful marriage and it's been so important in your life. Vital, not just important. I mean, uh, I'm using words now that uh, go beyond emotion. Um, I'm privileged to have made whatever contribution I've been able to make uh, uh, to the people I've worked with, uh, to the Army, uh, to the ADF, and if you like, to Australia. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I ferociously love this nation. Mm. Uh, and I can't stress enough the centrality of having a lovable, uh, available, supportive wife, life's partner, uh, who has handled the vicissitudes of service life like she's a, a natural soldier herself. She is that other form of soldier. She is the most loyal, loving, diligent person you could ever want to have in your life, and I love her dearly. Um, and uh, uh, I think if my sons were here, they'd be clambering over me to say she's the greatest mum on earth. 
Um, so, you know, we take it for granted. I have. And uh, she, in her own way, is a great leader. I've never seen her in a group of military officers and their own loved ones without them thinking, gee, she's fantastic. In that quiet way, that's leadership. Your life is more than just a military career, Sir Peter, but it is nonetheless a significant part of your life. How do you reflect on your time in the Australian Army, how it grew and evolved while you were in it and since leaving the service? The Army has been my, not just my work home, it's been my natural, my spiritual home. 27 houses I've lived in. The home, my home is actually the family I have around me. But over their shoulders will always be a slouch hat with a rising sun badge on it. And that's my reflection. Now, in the movie MacArthur, the, with Gregory Peck in it, many of your podcast viewers will have seen it, when he's addressing West Point, he gives this valedictory speech and he says when he crosses over the, uh, uh, the river, uh, his last thoughts will be of the core of the core and the core. Well, I, I don't do that. But um, when I uh, am no longer around, uh, I will have two sons who've served in the army and perhaps still kicking uh, will be hundreds, hopefully thousands, of senior people in the Australian Army uh, who will remember that we served together and I'll be watching over them. Now, it, it's um, interesting for a man whose professional life has been steeped in the application of violence, paradoxically, you've always seemed to rise above the fray. But I think it was the 1999 East Timor crisis that really transformed your place and in particular your esteem amongst your fellow Australians where your presence, sir, really reassured our nation that had been at peace literally for decades and then suddenly found itself in conflict with its greatest neighbour to the north. And as either commander of army or commander of the defence force, you've guided us us through some very critical incidents such as 9-11, Afghanistan, 2001-2002, the Bali bombings, Iraq in and after 2003. Well, all I can say is that for a very ordinary bloke, you've led a very extraordinary life. Yep. It's, it's part of the ageless dichotomy of being a military officer. You train yourself uh, and your experiences help you to be a, you want to be a sublime warfighter. You want potential adversaries to understand that if violence is inevitable, they pick the wrong enemy. In the Australian Defence Force, it's leadership. And then you move every fibre of your being to deter violence and to create the situation in which stability and peace can grow. If you have a legacy, uh, it's to enculturate that in all the people 
that you train and that you hand the baton to. One of the reasons for our success in Timor was that I wanted to make sure people understood, don't take them on, you're going to lose. And in that, in that way, peace becomes the much preferred option. So Peter Cosgrove, it's been an honour to speak with you, sir. Our nation salutes you, and I personally thank you for your time today and your service. Angus, thank you very much for your interest. I've enjoyed this immensely, uh, and uh, I send again through your podcast to your many watchers and, uh, and, and correspondents my very best wishes, and uh, won't it be great when we're out of lockdown? I'm Angus Horton, and it's been our absolute pleasure and honour to have spoken with Sir Peter Cosgrove. You Shouldn't Have Joined by General Sir Peter Cosgrove is out now and tells so many more stories than you heard today. The audiobook is out already, also narrated by Sir Peter, and the new paperback edition is available in all good bookstores. There's a lot more in it, including more of his time as Governor-General. Well worth the read. Follow us at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube, at LOTLPod on Twitter and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>